0: Welcome to the darkened hour.
1: Welcome to another episode of the darkened hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is a very special guest, Eric Kleinsmith. Mr. Kleinsmith was part of the chief intelligence branch of the U.S. Army's Land Information Warfare Activities Division, a former program manager at Lockheed Martin, and currently is associate vice president for strategic relationships within the intelligence, national, homeland security, and cyber community. American Military University and American Public University. In 2005, he testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee about the data mining program run by the Defense Intelligence Agency, codenamed Able Danger. He is also the author of several intelligence security-related articles and the 2020 book entitled *Intelligence Operations: Understanding Data, Tools, People, and Processes*. Thank you for coming on, Eric.
0: And thanks so much. and, and I appreciate you getting, getting my bio down because there's so many different pieces to it. It's, it's it, you know, sometimes I forget pieces of it.
1: Yeah, no problem. Um, what well, I'll start it real simple. What is the Land Information Warfare Activities Division, and how did you become part of it?
0: The, the, land, the land Information Warfare Activity, the, uh, otherwise known as LIWA, was an organization or a, a unit created within the Army in 1995. And it was to tackle the, the recognition that in warfare in the information sphere was just as sphere was just as important as lethal fires. Mm. Uh, so uh, so for combat operations, and so they rolled in a lot of different aspects under the responsibility of Lee and it, and it included deception, psychological operations, uh, computer network defense, uh, computer network operations. Um, operational security so keeping keeping the, the things that your unit is doing a secret or whatever your organization is and all those pieces required a new line of thinking and a new a new set of skills for both the operators and analysts to work. And so I initially came there from a tour with the Army in Germany where I was a counterintelligence company commander and I had about 150, Agents, interrogators, and linguists in the Balkans and in, in, uh, the first the first uh, uh, peace implementation force into Bosnia in 1996, and I came to the I, I went from there to um, to Leva um, initially in a in a program which was which is really just you know the only thing I can talk about is it, is it was a black program the, the part of what Leva did uh, so I worked that for my first year and then within Uh, with around the second uh, beginning of the second year, I had a colleague that said, you know, they're, they're missing their, the chief of their intelligence branch, Uh, and oh, by the way, the intelligence branch is a mess right now, because there's, there was an internal sexual harassment scandal going on within the, Mm. within the branch, there was interesting fighting between the different types of folks that were in there, the warrant officers, the, the NCOs, the civilians, and then the soldiers were caught in the middle, and so Um, I I requested by the commander to to take over it and clean it up and fix it, and in the middle of doing all of that was when our lewa was just getting involved with the data mining aspect. And so they were building uh, underneath in in the second level floor basement of the intelligence and security headquarters on Fort Belvoir, Virginia, they were clearing out all the office spaces and they were building what was called and what is still called the information dominance center. And they brought in a guy from Disney, a guy named Bran Farron, or, or who, who worked, for, worked for Disney who designed the Starship Enterprise for the next generation. And he re- rebuilt, he built this center down there. They removed like 109 cubicles and office spaces and created this center with a huge screen. You, if the commander had wanted to sit in his center council seat, which was a Recaro sports car seat. Um, and we had different pods and nodules around there, but you know, that was the flash of it, but behind it was a massive effort to build in the, the the Department of Defense's really first successful operation at doing data mining. And so that's the the role that I was in that job when we picked up the able danger piece was, uh, was Trying to tackle the what we call the bleeding edge technology of how to use these data mining tools in operations when before that there was really nothing written about how to do that. How, how did Lewa become
1: part of the Defense Intelligence Agency's covert operation Able Danger? And, and what did it what did it
0: do for them? We, we were approached, and, and this was off, off of a, a previous mission, and again. Uh, you know, when we got when we got in there with with the tools, it took us several months just to figure it out. We were rewriting the book on how to do analysis using data mining tools. And what we quickly understood though is, is that our intelligence community and on our anyone doing intelligence operations and any kind of analysis are, are we spent decades investing in collection systems. So the, the Department of Defense went nuts with the U-2 spy plane you know, in history, and then the, the SR-71, and then satellites, and then all these different technical collection measures, but they were really over, there was really nothing to handle all the data that was now increasingly come in, so it was overwhelming. So we started using these tools and we were sh- using them on test cases at first to show the capability of what our analysts could do. And one of the first things that we picked up was Uh, doing a a sensing session or doing just a uh, an an analytical piece on how our technology was being stolen by the People's Republic of China. And we did it really as we used a sample technology. I think we flipped a coin on which one we were going to use because that wasn't the important piece. It was mapping out and showing the results of the tools. Well, that became such a successful Uh, analytical project using data mining tools that it reached Capitol Hill. And we ended up helping then Congressman Kurt Weldon on a mission. He was going into Serbia. He didn't understand, uh, I'm sorry, he, he was looking for information about one of the Serbians that he was negotiating with. He had asked several agencies for help, and they really didn't have much other than a page and a half of material. Um, one of our folks who had links with Congress uh, was able to get to him. He, he asked uh, one of our lead scientists who came to our folks and just said, look, can you run something on this guy? So we ran, I think it took us a day and a half, and we came up with 18 pages worth of stuff on this guy that we were pulling off of, um, pulling off of both classified and just open source, i.e. the internet uh, on him. And, and you know, he was so impressed that he asked us to do this this technology piece for, uh, um, for the, the technology protection mission and how we were having classified technology stolen by our ad, by our adversaries. That really put us on the map and also in the crosshairs of many other intel agencies who did not have the tools yet, but saw that this group of 24 analysts were running circles around some of the larger agencies with the responsiveness and the focus we could give to to a warfighter, somebody who needed, uh, or somebody who was needed uh, to make decisions off of that. And that's when uh, our chief, the chief scientist that I had had a relationship with at this in the center with was Dr. Eileen Pricer. Mm-hmm. She had run, met up with Tony Schaefer and uh, a guy from Special Operations Command, uh, Commander Scott Philpot and asked, look, these guys from from Special Operations Command are, are going around DC. They're kind of frustrated with the results they're getting or the priority they're not getting for help in combating al-Qaeda. Could you guys do something like that? And so we just gave them a demonstration of the data mining tools. Um, this had to be, I think it was late December of ninety-nine. Yeah, late December. In December ninety-nine, we gave them a demonstration. We showed them some of the things that we could do. And they really didn't say a lot. They asked some pointed questions, but they left and uh, they called us back again and said, look, we, we, we think we want to get you guys involved with this. We need you to come down to, and this was uh, Commander Philpott, and said, so we need you to come down to a joint planning session at the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Dahlgren, Virginia, which was, which is just off the Ch- Chesapeake, uh, uh, Chesapeake uh, River, Chesapeake Bay. And so, that became a hot ticket item. They, they made, our leadership made the decision that we don't want uh, Eileen Price or going there because she's crea- already created some enemies in the Intel community. Send Eric and send another guy, a, a civilian who's, who, can, who can moderate what Eric does. Uh, so they sent me with another, another uh, uh, GG or GS civilian who didn't have much to do with the, the data mining tools, but was just really running cover for me while, while I went went to this session. And during that session, it was a collection of all the different agencies uh, it, you know, that, that had showed up. It was just an interagency working group. And the, it was a, an attempt to do an initial planning session for how SOCOM could combat uh, Al Qaeda. Um, and again, this is again, 99, Early 2000s, so this is even before, well, you know, well before 9/11. And what we found was that, you know, that the, they were really unhappy with the what the CIA, with folks from the CIA, were bringing up. They were unhappy with folks from DIA, what they were talking about. Uh, Bin Laden's personal uh, biographer, and I can't remember what agency he was from, he came out and at the beginning of the session said, "We think Bin Laden is about to die if he hasn't already uh, had." Has died from pancreatic cancer, and it's just—it's not that this is not that important to us. Mm. And about halfway through the day, or at lunch, uh, Commander Philpot came to me and just said, "Look, uh, this is—what do you think about this?" I said, "This is a, an exercise," and I told him, this, "You know, my my viewpoint coming from a tactical environment, this is an exercise in futility. Uh, Whoever is the loudest guy in the room is getting their their uh, viewpoint uh, recorded, while anybody that has any." you know, problems, issues with it. There's really no back and forth discussion here. And, I, and he said, so what can you do to add to this? I said, let me call back to my one of my chief analysts. And I called uh, uh, one of my warrant officers who is an expert with the tools. I said, let me have her run something and uh, we'll get something back to you. And, and, I, and I gave her about 90 minutes. And I just said, look, we need you, to, need you to map out where we get some hits from the data mining tools on Al on, uh, Qaeda worldwide uh, call you back in, in, in 90 minutes. Well, she emails me a file, uh, put through some slides together very quickly, uh, emailed to me on a classified server, and we were able to map out, again, within an hour and a half, major hotspots of where al-Qaeda was. And so we had four areas. We had obviously the Middle East, we had the Maghreb region of North Africa, we had the Far East, which which was their linkage with the uh, Jama'at and Abu Sayyaf, other uh, Islamic terrorist organizations operating out of in, uh, Indonesia and the Philippines, uh, and then we had some some strange hits both in Europe and the Balkans, which we understood, and then finally we had a lot of hits within the U.S. and that was our first indicator that there's there's something going on. Uh, these guys are as active as hell for a terrorist organization who's about to lose their leader and 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 the prevailing thought is that they're confined to the Middle East. And we were able to show that we had, uh, I remember specifically, several other people from the tr- session broke off and came into the separate conference room that I was use- using to brief back Scott, uh, Commander Philpot on what we had found. Uh, one of them was a, nav- a Navy commander who had outranked me as a major and was. Uh, Uh, essentially very combative with the whole brief and finally was just giving me all kinds of grief. and one of the things that he said was, you know, this is what you're showing me is nothing that my folks hadn't already been working on forever. We know all this information and I said, yeah, but my folks did it in 90 minutes and we're already caught up. That's how data mining works. We're able to sift through information faster, spending more time doing analysis. Um, and, oh, by the way, the, the tools don't care about your biases and misperceptions or whatever you're, you're working on. Your tools only care about what what it gets back from you. So that's that's my five-minute answer to a very short question of how we got involved. Because at that point, uh, Commander Philpot just leaned over and goes, okay, you guys are in. We'll wrap up here. We'll just work with you guys exclusively.
1: Who, who uh, I've always wanted to ask this. Uh, who, who named it Able Danger and why did they choose that specifically?
0: It, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've I've had uh, I've had programs that I'm working that I've worked on get classified at the time where we had to uh, uh, come up with a name for it, and and this is just you know who knows how how they did that. But the first uh, one part and it was a black program I was working on. I said, look, I need a classification for this. This is a whole new area, so I had to go to the security manager at Intelligence and Security Command, and it was a older guy about in his he had to be in his 60s and he goes all right here's how we're going to do this and he he, no kidding pulls out a dictionary randomly flips through the pages and stops on one and puts his finger down and says all right this is your first word and then he randomly does it again he goes all right this is your second word that's the name of your program right i was like well that's just stupid as hell i mean that's i mean just because it was it was just you know sometimes you can get some pretty ridiculous combinations but uh able dangerous was probably named just by somebody at SOCOM that said this is this these are two words that are pertinent and we can just keep it like that uh and it's something that you just don't give away you know we you don't want to give away the operation sure I mean I was in a previous operation in Germany when I was a a, a intelligence officer for a a infantry battalion and armor brigade and the the infantry battalion was in was going to go do a a mission called Able Century in Macedonia, which was peacekeeping operations of, of manning outposts between Macedonia and Serbia. And one of the folks at our in, at our division headquarters said, okay, we're going to rename this operation just so that it's a code name and nobody knows what we're going to talk about, we're going to rename it Big Mac. And it was just kind of, it, you know, it showed up on a several slides. It's like, this is the most ridiculous name. We're going to Macedonia and you want to name this Big Mac. That's just you know, right. It, it was some staff captain and, he, you know, they, they removed that after the first briefing and, and changed it to something else.
1: <laughs> you know, it, it seemed that 1996 was a uh, key year for intelligence. Uh, the Central Intelligence Agency began the Bin Laden issue station. The Defense Intelligence Agency became able danger. And the NSA began to monitor a house in Yemen, which was the Al-Qaeda communications hub. Right. Um, right. Did any of these agencies turn to you for help in sharing intelligence or were they refusing to acknowledge the program altogether because they didn't wish to share the data in the first place?
0: Well, part, you know, part of it was the timing. So ninety-six, uh, Leo was just getting started, hmm. uh, and they did not have the, in, the data mining capabilities until I would say right about the time that I got there. And it was a, a chief scientist that had come in and started and immediately was 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 able to lobby to get. I think it was. You know over 10 million dollars 13 around 13 million dollars worth of data mining tools to put in there so then that was 19 no, not until 98 99 but as soon as we started doing what we were doing um our our center and again because it looked like the bridge of the enterprise and it was just you know so it was forward thinking but also forward looking and so you even had the automatic doors that would you know swish when you approached mike and star trek um, but we started doing what in, 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 milit- in, in our terms were called dog and pony shows, where every VIP that wanted to see what the Army was doing, we were a short drive from D.C., and so we were getting folks from the other agencies, folks from Congress, folks from other parts of DOD, and you know, I, must, I think I must have given between 80 and 200 dog and pony show briefings on the intelligence capabilities of the center. That got us a lot of attention, but also it got a lot of. Uh, you know, the target was kind of on our back because here was a small cell of 24 analysts uh, working for Lewa, which was not an intelligence organization; was an operational organization in the basement of intelligence and security headquarters, which again is, which is itself is, which is intelligence. You know, that and part of the uh, army's intelligence structure. So it, it was. A really strange relationship, but that gave us really open license to support whoever we needed. And so we started supporting. Uh, I, you know, I remember uh, specifically supporting a lot of uh, combatant commands like Pacific Command or European Command because they were just not happy with the way that they they were asking for support from national, from national level, level agencies and just not getting the priority or not getting the response. Um, you know, it, was, it was that, but we could provide that level of detail and get that to them much quicker by almost circumventing the, 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 a very archaic arm, uh, military structure of passing up requirements and things like that. So we had customers that were coming to us left and right, but we were getting other intelligence agencies who were very unhappy with the way that we were you know, running fast and loose with data and with analysis. And so you know, one of the biggest complaints was like, well, your stuff hasn't been vetted. Uh, your analysis hadn't been vetted, we need to take that through a system and another person has to look at it, almost like in academia where a paper had to be peer-reviewed before it could be put out. We were running so fast with the data, we could you know, put back a product within 12 to 24 hours that was fairly substantial. And that's really all. Our, our customer didn't care whether it was vetted or not. They just wanted to see what it was. You know, that's And that's the same way it is in a tactical environment. When you know, my commander in an infantry battalion was a, you know, we'd spend 10 minutes doing an entire battle drill or, or he'd ask for an assessment on the fly. Those, that's the kind of mentality that I had brought in and I re-wicked our intelligence branch to be that responsive. So it was more than just data mining. It was just the, the environment that our, our, our uh, intelligence branch was in. Uh, you know, we, we were getting calls left and right from just off the wall. You know, hey, we want you to take a look at the, the uh, current intifada going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We specifically got a request from the Army Chief of Staff, you know, that the, the head of the U.S. Army wants to know within 24 hours, what's the effect of these uh, propaganda efforts and the propaganda war taking place between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We were the only ones that could turn around a product that fast with, you know, multimedia and examples and things like that.
1: Right. Um, now, that's interesting because uh, I, I asked Schaefer this in a previous interview mm-hmm. about um, him having a, a, a closed door meeting with the CIA's Alex station. Um, and right off the bat, you could tell that there was this uh, level of indifference toward each agency. Yeah, was, was, was that specifically with the CIA? Or did you have that feeling with other intelligence agencies as well? when this was uh, transpiring?
0: I would say it was almost everyone that we we ran into. And partly is because, again, we were not part of an intel, we were not part of a three-letter intel agency. Right. We were a very, you know, a very small, refined operation that could focus specifically on a single customer, our boss, and, and the customers of of information warfare. And, and that's what made it you know, in, you know, as an example, of after the USS Cole was bombed, um, and this was, you know, after all the, the we were shut down for the, the Able Danger piece, um, we were allowed to start back up, but the, it was too late before the Cole was bombed. Well, SOCOM didn't come back to us. It was uh, US Central Command. And the, the, the J-2 of Central Command was a guy named Brigadier General Keith Alexander. Hmm. And they came up with their analysts and they wanted to work with us. And we had a working group where we brought, again, we brought in all the different agencies had representation, uh, CIA, NSA, DIA, they all came in and I hosted this meeting within our center in this, you know, massive triangular uh, conference room that overlooked the information dominance center, big glass, uh, kind of like a glass fishbowl within the, within the center. Right. And as we went around the room, you know, everybody introduced themselves with, where they came from. And we had one individual come up to us from that came down from NSA. And he basically started out by saying, you know, where I'm from NSA, here's all the things I cannot do for you. And his introduction to himself was all the things that he couldn't or wouldn't do. And I just kind of blew him off. And I, and I asked to speak with him at a break. And I just had him in the room alone with my commander who, who, who ran cover for me. Um, and I, and it, I just asked this guy, I was like, look, we need this, this kind of information for this operation. He goes, well, I can't give you that. I can only give you, you know, I can only give you, a, a, you know, when I get that kind of information in, I can't give it to you raw because I have to sift through that and vet that information to see that it's any good. I was like, okay, well, give, then give me that. Well, no, I can't give you that either because then I got to go through and, and call out the important pieces that I'm going to write a report on. It's like, oh, okay, give me that. Well, no, I can't give you that because I still then have to do analysis on those and then send you, and then build a report that then goes up. And I just said, you know what? All right, you're fired. I said, go back to NSA, tell them that NSA cannot, ha- cannot, help, cannot help us on the USS coal bombing aftermath Uh, analysis, um, tell them that NSA is is no longer a player in this. And he, he left for the day, he came back the very next day with all kinds of apologies. And, you know, he said, well, we're, we're changing our stance. What can we do to help you? But, and I think that's just an example of all the, the resistance that we saw part partly because folks that didn't understand data mining, partly because they didn't understand or didn't like our organization, the fact that we could use data mining and go and go 10 times as fast as they could but also and then partly just because their own culture was based around the the information is power or if I have information I have that power if I give that to you freely I'm giving you my power I, I really can't afford to do that we in our agency need to receive credit for everything that we do and so it's those three things combined that really put a target on our backs to really and really kind of Kept us from getting cooperation across several operations.
1: Who from LEWA was involved with the Able Danger program, and was the data mining effective in returning actionable intelligence?
0: Yes, um, we had we kept the, our support to Able Danger within an extremely small group. Right, um, as I had a, brand, a, a branch of twenty four analysts, I. Uh, only tasked four of us to work it. And I included myself in that. So, cause we had other missions that were concurrently going on all the time. Mm-hmm. We had re- requests for information from, again, all, from all over uh, DOD. Uh, so we were continually to work those. So I peeled off one warrant officer, one civilian, mm-hmm. uh, I it was, and myself from my branch. And then our senior scientist, uh, Dr. Arlene Price, it was four of us that worked that. almost, you know, in, in an ad hoc cell that we we had put that I had assembled to provide that support and that was it so just between the four of us we're working that and and again i had to manage the branch at the same time so it was you know doing my doing all my daily routines doing all my you know all the other things that i was responsible for but then every other piece was working on that doing doing analysis doing quality control checks on the analysis that the other the other folks were working on
1: now, the was the data mining effective in returning uh, actual intelligence?
0: Yes, ab- absolutely. And this is this is where it's having a little bit of an understanding of, of what type of analysis we were doing. Normally, when you get a request in, it's something that's very specific. I need to know, um, you know, I need to know about this person and his involvement in this operation, or I need to know about the uh, electrical infrastructure of this part of this country, you know, or that kind of thing. This, what we received from SOCOM wasn't even really anything, it was so general. It was essentially find Al-Qaeda worldwide, go. That was it. Mm. And so it was a, it, as fast as our tools could do, but it was, it was really a, a way to conduct what the military then called in, uh, IPB or intelligence preparation of the battlefield or intelligence preparation of the battle space. And they've renamed it several things since then. Uh, but it's really just to find, see what we had, just to lay out and create a map. And that's what we started doing was a, a, an analytical process called threat mapping, where you mapped out the locations and dispositions and relationships of all the key players, key accounts, key locations, safe houses, and just kind of lay those out on both a physical and an information map. That says this is our map of this organization. Here's who talks to who. Here's the mm. here's the relationships with outside elements, and that's that's really what ha- you have to do that uh, before you can then you know answer more specific questions about who is this guy and where where does he live or something like that. And so that's as far as we got when we started doing the data mining. Is we started mapping out again those four to five key locations or concentrations of the organization around the world, we started flushing those out as, as much as we could. And, and our initial charts that we were creating were just uh, link charts of, of people, places, and things that that we knew were important that uh, we started sending back to SOCOM. And I know there's a big, you know, during the able danger hearings years later, there was a huge question of like, what about the chart? What, you know, which Mm. Uh, what about the chart that had Mohammed Attan in the New Jersey cell? Where is that chart or, or, you know, who can verify that he was on that? And my f- first time I, I heard that question pop up and I was just like, which chart? It's not one chart. We had two dozen charts that we had created. Right. We had several different types of products that we had put together. And we and pulled in uh, a contractor named J.D. Smith, who then worked for a very small company named uh, Orion I think it was Ryan Technologies or Ryan something or other. It was Ryan Scientific, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, Ryan Scientific. And so, and they, and I had already worked with them on some pieces for the Balkans, uh, support to the Balkans. But it, um, again, so, you know, they were even creating charts and sending them to us. And so it was, you know, it was a, there were, so, there were we, we had so many pieces, but all of it was really just to lay out. To SOCOM at first, this is kind of where we have the organization today. This is the, you know, the locations and the people and the leadership and the, um, the, the targets they're going after. And it, it became a, uh, the basis for a, a really of, of an analytical technique that I put in my book on threat profiling. And instead of mm. like the FBI profiles a serial murderer, I was is able to develop what we had done there and, and into profiling an entire group. And here's how to look at the group's organization, its leadership, its, its vulnerabilities, its strengths, its weaknesses, its, um, uh, the, its uh, social demographics, what's the type of people they recruit, how do they recruit, you know, anything you need to know about an organization. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we were trying to build. And it was right during that first process. So we could give, you know, something back to SOCOM and then have them come back to us like, all right, we're interested in this area here or look, we really, we want to interdict this safe house or whatever. We never got to that point because that's right, right where we were when we were then shut down and given the orders to cease and desist work on this from uh, DOD lawyers.
1: In in January of 2000, Scott Philpott was part of the team would meet with uh, General Shoemaker and General Shelton. Yes, And he would brief them on Lewa's capabilities in regards to able danger and their data mining after the meeting lewa would become the full intelligence analytical partner right. and the joint chiefs of staff were highly impressed with your data mining techniques right. it seemed that the defense intelligence they
0: were not even aware of the data mining techniques you employed well it again it, and it was a resistance you know not having you know a, a exposure to it again these are folks uh, I, I mean, there was one analyst that that came in that was no kidding. Part of Operation Desert One, rescuing the American hostages in Iran in 1980, you know, and you know that's how long this guy had had been around. And um, you know, so I don't say he's long in the tooth, but you know, he they were several of these, especially the older folks were were dead set on their way, which most right. of the folks we were working with were by that time were, were senior levels. I was one of the youngest, you know, youngest people involved with a lot of these meetings at, at 33. And and so part of an example is they they just were were downgrading or just simply dismissing our, the tools themselves. And so we, we finally just said, look, here here's a here's a shot of a tool that we were using. Um, I think it was called Themescape, which was then developed by Cartier Labs. And it would take about I think we had like 4,000 documents that were laid out like a, a geographic look of a landscape. And so you, it, it, no kidding, looked like an island with peaks and valleys based upon different points of uh, data that how they align with each other in this, in whatever all the documents that you pulled up. And the first thing this, this one of these guys said was just, well, this isn't showing me what I want to see. And we said, yeah, yes, that's the whole problem. It's these tools are not going to show you what you want to see. They're going to tell you what the data is telling and the data is telling us that, you know, exactly what we asked for, it, which was, you know, find Al Qaeda worldwide. You know, just let's let's start creating this this map. And that's part of the problem was just not understanding the tools, and then therefore not wanting. You know, then all of a sudden it becomes more of a survivability and a protectionist issue. It's like last thing we want is for these punks in, Lewa to upstage the entire DIA, you know, counterterrorism effort or CIA's counter-terrorist effort. Uh, these guys, we need to get rid of these guys. And so as soon as somebody found that there was a problem with the data mining tools and that they would, you know, collect so much information, we had two and a half terabytes in our first uh, polls, they were collecting so much information, it is almost 100% guaranteed that they are pulling in information about U.S. persons and therefore are potentially in violation of the, you know the intelligence regulations that we are no we are not authorized to collect information about us persons right. uh, it, it's a hundred percent guarantee that they just did that through the data mining tools
1: right that was going to be my my next question actually i'm glad you it was a good lead up in may of 2000 you were ordered by tony gentry of the general Counsel of the army intelligence and security command to de- destroy the 2.5 yes. terabytes of data yeah um, yes. because, and, that, and, that, and because ahead. of because of that, um, because, of, because it was uh, uh, pertaining to U.S. persons and could not be held longer for 90 days. And that right. was concerning Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shea, Jara, members of the Hamburg cell, um, oh. in which later on, um, under oath, William Dugan, the assistant to De- Defense Secretary of Intelligence Oversight, said that they were not considered U.S. persons. Now, my question is, did you at all think about storing the data secretly elsewhere? And if you did, what kind of repercussions would you have faced? And also, why did Dugan's response contradict what you were told regarding Atta and others as opposed to what Duncan told the committee?
0: It, it's, it, it, technically, he was correct, but that's not why we had to delete the data. Right. It's not because of Muhammad Atta and the, and the other 9-11 hijackers were in there. We, nobody knew at the time that they right. were going to do what they were going to do. It's the fact that when we harvested that much information, it was all the other data that had all the other US persons that were in there. And so one example is we, we did a poll and it, it, that, brought us to, that, that brought us to an article about Stanford University. Well, it mentions Condoleezza Rice in the article that said that, hmm. that she was, I think a fellow or on the board of Stanford for a while or had some sort of relationship. Well, she was nominated, she was named in the article. Um, we found this was, and this was the one I always remember because it's just, it was, it was kind of hilarious, but we found a Moroccan car dealership that was being used to, as a front organization to funnel money into the Al Qaeda. So it was part of their logistics element. And we had no kidding had briefed. Uh, we had folks from the, from the FBI had come up to take a look at our briefing and and just, and, and show them what we had. And they stopped and said, so wait a minute, where'd you get that information? And we, so we pulled up and said, well, we, we have a bunch of other, we have several reports that had verified this, but the tip off was a website that was run by this Michigan militia conspiracy theorist dude that on the same web page that we showed them, it had information about this car dealership, but then it also said that the KGB and the FBI were in collusion uh, to arm northern Michigan by, by, by moving weapons and, uh, and creating weapons caches in northern Michigan in the Upper Peninsula for the takeover and creation of a, a new state up there. And then uh, had another conspiracy that Chelsea Clinton's real father was Webster-Hubble. And so it had all this stuff that had nothing to do with it, but that one piece on that page, for whatever reason, this nut was absolutely right because we could back it up with other, with other data from different sources, but because that was our tip-off, you know, the folks at the Bureau looked at us like, these guys are nuts. You know, they're relying upon conspiracy kooks to, mm. for their tipping and queuing of, of the analysis that we're doing. And, they, and that, that was part of the problem we were running into. Is like, look, the tool doesn't care what a nut this guy was, that the, mm. all the tool cares was that this, this was a hit and then they and the, that it was able to back it up by finding linkages to other reports that said the same thing, you know, that's the, the mentality again, what we were, we were fighting. I didn't even when, answer your question, but that's <laughs> right. No, when,
1: when you were ordered to destroy day, did you think about secretly storing the data now? And, and if you did, uh, what kind of ramifications would you be? Yeah. Looking
0: at? Oh yeah. I mean, I, it, it, we got the first, first cue was it was a couple of weeks before the 90 day market, and I guess, and just for clarity is, is we operate off of some very strict rules and it starts with executive order 12, 12, triple three, and then that leads into, there was a DOD regulation and then, the but the army regulation then was a 381-10 and then the 381-10 had 15 basic rules or procedures on how you could collect information about us persons under which circumstances, and then what, uh, how long you could keep it. and we had again 90 days from collection and that was again one of the one of the conflicting points was is it considered collection if 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 you did it as a human being you collected information yeah that's Mm -hmm. you collected information about a u.s person but when a tool did it just based upon a query does is that was one of the things the lawyers were trying to wrestle with is that considered a directed effort or was it just collected incidentally and so you know, they, they aired on the side of caution, just said that was a directed effort. So uh, you have 90 days to keep this information and then Mm. you're going to have to delete it. And so we got warned beforehand. Uh, I I sat in my office with, with the the warrant officer I had on there um, uh, and we both talked about, you know, and she was like, you know what, what if we just put all this stuff on a, on a hard drive and just kind of kept it in a safe someplace. So, so once we got running Mm. again, we wouldn't have to delete it. I said, if we do that, we, you know we're we're knowingly violating the law and and it's not just a little law you know this is a go-to-jail mm-hmm. law type thing and so um you, you know the day that it occurred the captain gentry came down from the inscom legal office i mean he was a friend of mine so it was not a a hostile right. interchange between us but he just said look i'm just i'm, I'm joking with you now but you, you gotta this this stay or you're going to jail uh, and so we had to make the effort. So I deleted everything that was online and, and uh, the warrant officer I was working with, she deleted everything that was in our backups. And so, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that was about the, you know, yeah, that was a horrible day, but it wasn't as horrible as realizing that, that after 9-11 or right, right when 9-11 hit, you know, that evening we were on the phone with each other knowing because we knew something was coming. We, we knew that there was an operation on its way, we didn't. We couldn't figure it out. But as soon as 9/11 hit, we were all on the phone with each other and said, "We had them. We had these guys."
1: And right, that just was to, the toughest part. And right, just to give some clarity, I was going to ask. Uh, before Able Danger and because of LIWA, managed to collect an enormous amount of open source data regarding two or three cells that were operating inside the United States. Yes, one that was uh, headed by Omar uh, Omar Abdel rahman mm-hmm. who was convicted for the Landmarks plot. Yep. And, of course, Muhammad Atta. Right. And also 20 suspects. And, and some of them were involved with the 9-11 attacks. Right. Just to give you some um, some clarity about what kind of information Able right. Danger was able to put. So your Able Danger was considered relatively a success here.
0: It, it was up until the point of when we were stopped. Right. You know, we we had a, a great focus. And this is why I, I, I titled my book, um, understanding data tools people and processes because that's you know, after 9-11 all kinds of intelligence organizations were popping up all over within the U.S. and, and a lot of other organizations had figured out it's like why should I be 57th in line to get a DIA analyst right. read on something when I can go hire my own and I or I can just put some data and tools in a room and, and have my own dedicated intel structure so that's, that's that's what's changing and is still changing intel today and how it's run so the problem is is that you can, you just can't put intel or I'm sorry intelligence data and a bunch of tools in a room and say now I have a capability it's you have to have a, a very well thought out and planned and perfect combination of, of data tools people and processes if just one of those aspects is broken your intelligence ap- operation is worthless is, or dysfunctional mm. and that's what we had at the time is we had the data we had the tools But more importantly than anything else is we had, I mean, we had some extremely bright people that were working on this from the, not from the engineering side, but from the, um, I mean, they were, they were smart in their own right, but we had, you know, I had some incredibly smart analysts and we were able to figure out and develop the processes that we would use that were sound. And only that, only because of that reason, were we successful in doing, you know, uncovering all these different elements without getting bogged down in the. In the, in the process itself. Right. Now, in in
1: Robert, Colonel Robert Worthington of the US Air Force, who was the Director of Able Danger between June of 2000 and January right. of 2001, right. ordered that the unit was not permitted to share any data with FBI officials due to fear of potential blowback uh, that the US Special Operations Command was concerned about another Waco incident. Was yeah. this concern shared amongst your team at Lewa and Able Danger?
0: Yes, but it was, that was not as, that was not as, that was not as important to us in Virginia as, as the problem we were run into is, is having, being just shut down in our entirety.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, the sharing is like, you know what, all right, that's, that's a SOCOM problem. We'll let them work that out. Uh, You know, we had, we got to the point where they, they brought our team into the room, had us re-sign our documentation on intelligence oversight that we understood the rules and then at one point, as we were negotiating with him, it was in the commander of Lee at the time was Colonel Jim Gibbons, um, mm. it, where the, he told him and myself to, to our face that we're gonna have to have a lawyer sit down next to you and your analysts. So every time that they're working on something, if they're getting ready to click on a new node, they got essentially they wanted to, to make sure that the lawyer had approved that you could do that. And it it got to the point where, you know, and Gibbons just threw his hands up in frustration, just said, you we have a formula one race car and you're asking us to go around the track at 20 miles an hour we may as well get out and walk that's how dumb these there's some of the interim solutions they came up with right were in order to do that it's what's funny is after after the coal bombing um they they just they just threw all those to the wind and, I'm, and i know after 9-11 it, you know again that's Mm-hmm. They went nuts. I mean, there's a, a great book by Shane Harris called The Watchers that uh, that I'm featured in that talks about that, about what you know how 9/11 changed the attitudes on how how much how protective are we going to be over this U.S. person's information when you know all of a sudden we we are having people you know we're having people die up into the thousands because we screwed this one up. Right now,
1: in, in a key period around this time, um, and according to Schaefer, uh, was the retirement of General Peter Shoemaker in October of 2000.
0: Right. And
1: his replacement was um, General Charles Holland.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
1: says that the, that was a major reason for the shutdown of the data mining effort. And he says in the book, Operation Dark quote, that General Holland, in my judgment, did not understand the concept. And he ordered yeah. the effort to terminate its activities right. in Garland, Texas, right. and for the personnel to return to Tampa. Right. The, locat- the location of SOCOM headquarters and, cool. and um, according to Shaper, the teeth and operational focus are now removed, and that effectively ended Able Danger. Is that right. true?
0: Yeah. Yes. And that's and that thing is is we have we had seen that every time I gave a presentation or one of these dog and pony shows, we we would classify our visitors as the get it's and don't get it's. And the get-its, you could just tell because they saw the potential. They saw what could be done. You could, you could actually see them nodding their heads along as, as they were looking at it or asking very pointed questions like, you know, that means I could do this and I could do this, this, and this. And the don't get-its were the folks that, you know, were, would physically, you could tell. They, they were, they'd cross their arms, they'd stare blankly, or they'd ask very accusatory questions about, well, you don't know what you're doing here or that. And, and to have somebody come in that was a don't get-it it was not a surprise. Now, Socom became so frustrated waiting for LEWA to get our legal, you know, our legal hurdles taken down that they decided to try to recreate the operation in Garland, Texas, at a, at a I think it was a Raytheon facility. And again, they just threw data and tools into a room, but they didn't have the anal- analytical, uh, the the analysts or the right people and the processes to make it work. So. It was probably better that Holland did that because you know, he was shutting down an operation that wasn't really working as mm. effective as what we could do.
1: And and yet, just to reiterate more, you guys saw the expansive nature of these terror cells, whereas yes. and you were reporting this back to your superiors, and it just seemed like that there wasn't a click there, um, or or otherwise they wouldn't have shut it down. If would, would that that been the case? Well, was it? Basically because of the
0: legal, legal ramifications. It was, it, yeah, it was the legal, it was the legal stuff. I mean, that was, I mean, that's, that's all it was. I mean, that's um, one of the problems we ran into with this, this Chinese uh, uh, counter proliferant. I'm tech, I'm sorry, technology, the, the Chinese technology theft mission that we had done before able dangers, there was a, a rumor had floated up on Capitol Hill that we were, we were being ordered to delete all the data for that as well. And so we were subpoenaed by, and I, I think it was the House, uh, shoot, one of the one of the committees, the House, the House, is the House either House, Judiciary Committee or or I can't remember who who did it, but we received a subpoena from Congress to provide all of the data. So we spent the entire week, uh, rest of the week and weekend, making photocopies of, uh, of all the data that we use, and it turned out into 40 to 50 thousand pages of printed material, we had to print these databases out, package them all up and then send different copies to Congress and to, you know, everywhere else. And it was the biggest worthless drill in our lives of of why we, you know, why would we have to do that? Well, it was a fear that the data was gonna be lost. And so that's, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, going into, by the time we went into the able danger piece, you know, we were already uh, notorious for the, some of the, some of the waves that we were causing because we could see things that, that they couldn't that the rest of the no. DoD couldn't see. Right. And it, again, we did this a similar technology protection mission was running even con- was running concurrent to able danger. and it was to help the army understand how technology was being stolen from the army as a, as a counterintelligence effort. And I provided those results directly up to the Pentagon and went up there and briefed it. And the senior civilian that I, I briefed, he, he walked. He, he, you know, he he ended the meeting and kind of walked out. And he just said, "I got to hire two dozen counter intel guys to cover all these areas you just revealed to me that we don't look at." Hmm. And, and it was because it's, I, I was able to show him in a quick map, and this this one only took us a few days. Of here's how your technology is being stolen. It's being stolen before it's classified. So you have uh, infiltration of foreign nationals within our, within our universities that are stealing the technology as it's being researched. And then you've got partnerships with, uh, with U.S. companies that are doing research on classified technology with par- partnerships with other foreign companies who are then turning and partnering with, uh, with the Chinese or our adversaries. And so they're stealing it that way as well and the army was was again it was shocked by say, by looking at this saying we don't even look at those areas you know we you know thanks to um, thanks to the, you know the, the the culture created after the vietnam war there there's no reason to go for our, for us intelligence to go on a U, on a college campus that's just criminal well guess what you're doing the classified research and that's where it's being stolen before you classify it. and that you know again that caused waves. So that operation was shut down and concurrently to ABLE Danger because we were doing the same things uh, for a different mission, totally different mission. And, and those, both of them were shut down at the same time. We, could, we couldn't we could work on either of them.
1: When did ABLE Danger officially end and what happened to lewa afterwards?
0: Well, was still there running as an organization. It's been renamed as the first Information Operations Battalion um, and, and same logo and uh, everything else. They've changed their mission focus. They're, they've uh, obviously over the last 20 years, there's a there's, there's hundred things of reorganization pieces that have changed on it. But ABLE Danger effectively ended for us when, when the, the coal bombing occurred and we started supporting CENTCOM instead of uh, SOCOM. SOCOM has said, why well, are going to Texas? We don't need you guys anymore. Um, the coal bombing occurred and then CENTCOM came up. So it's, you know, same base from Florida, but we just, we're, pro- we're providing support to a different group.
1: Uh, after the September 11th attacks, Dr. Eileen Presser held a meeting with Anthony Schaefer and showed him a chart yeah. with Muhammad Atta. Even with all the detractors and critics, right. the ABLE Danger Program was a relative success, albeit the data, was never shared with anybody outside the program. If right. you never were ordered by U.S. Army lawyers to destroy the data, do you believe it could have prevented some or all of the attacks? Yeah, I
0: mean, I you know, and I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that it's like, it's just, you don't know, but I, I know it would have, you know, I, I know it would have been, you know, the data the data that we had worked on by itself would have been a help, but if we had been allowed to continue to work it and flesh out those areas and vet this, those pieces. Yes, absolutely. We we would have had we would have had a significant influence on on you know events up until that point.
1: After Schaefer was privately interviewed by 9/11 Commission uh, director Philip Zelikow regarding the Able Danger program, were you or anyone else questioned by
0: the 9/11 Commission, no. Joint House Inquiry? No. No. Never never even approached. And we were actually, actually uh, be, between a couple of us, we were talking about that. I kind of wonder when they're gonna come down and wanna ask talk, talk to us about that. Well, that why do never you th- occurred.
1: Well, why do you think that was, by the way? I,
0: I you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's because of uh, the, the troubles that, that uh, Schaefer was already having with his, on a personal level at the DIA already so therefore, anything he said was discounted. Uh, most of us just, you know, went back went back to doing whatever jobs we were doing, um, you know, after the military. And you know, it was just, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't up for us it, again. It was, and we were providing support to Socom uh, as as a customer. So a lot of us were hesitant to talk about that just because of how sensitive that mission was. It wasn't until after Aunt, uh, uh, Tony Schaefer came forward that. that you know, I came into work. And at that point, I was still working for INSCOM as a contractor, and I was running a uh, training program for them uh, to teach all their analysts how to do how to use data mining tools. Mm. Um, and that that program is actually still running. Um, but the uh, I, I walked into work, and there were several of my colleagues, or several retired uh, lieutenant colonels that were in the office. And they were just like, hey, did you hear the news? And I said, I said, no, what's up? I said, "There, there's a uh, Tony Schaefer, this guy came out and he's in the news about saying that these guys had, there's an operation that was run right out of INSCOM headquarters that mm-hmm. had found, you know, Muhammad Atan, a 9-11 hijacker. And I just said, it was like, yeah, you know who the military lead was on that? He goes, who is it? Me. <laughs> and th- that afternoon I was called by uh, a producer from 60 Minutes. I was called by the lo- our lawyer or the lawyer that was uh, representing Tony at the time, Mark Zaid, and I, shortly thereafter, I said, time for me to let, call my Congressman and let him know that, I, that you know, look, you got somebody who was involved, I'm, gonna, I'm probably gonna get dragged up there to testify.
1: All right. Now, after it was decided that the 9-11 Commission would not use the information provided by Schaefer, on top of this, the DIA's Inspector General, Mike Kingsley, uh, had quote, unquote, significant allegations against Schaefer, which required his right. uh, top secret SCI to be suspended What was your reaction to this? And were you or anyone else from the Able Danger program worried about potential blowback from the Defense Department?
0: No, the the only problem I had was a a senior civilian within Intelligence Security Command headquarters who had something against me for the work I was doing at the time, not during Able Danger. And so she had asked uh, to have my clearance revoked and thrown out of the building because using Able Danger as a way to keep me out of, keep me out from being a problem for them, for the, my current job as a, a trainer and instructor. Um, I, I then found out I had several other civilians that were working in INSCOM headquarters that said they would quit if I got thrown out. And the legal counsel uh, brought me up into his office said, I never knew how many, he was, you'll never know how many good friends you have in this building because several of them threatened to walk if that, if that happened. And I had no idea any of that occurred. I had no idea any of the that was uh, that was going on against Tony Schaefer as, as well until much later. Right.
1: Um, and um, on September 21st of 2005, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, headed by Chairman All Inspector, heard from yourself and members of the Nature Team, and you testified that Schaefer's behalf where he could not because of his uh, right. suspension. What was right. the nature of your testimony?
0: But part of it was just was telling the story of that we did exist. This is what we did do. This is why we were stopped. And this is you know, the reason why I was the one that had to delete the data. That, that was one of the most horrible things to, 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 to hear from someone was when I, I walked into that room to testify and it was just packed wall to wall standing room only is a very large in a very large room. And I leaned over to the staffer that I'd been working with. And I know it was, it was our inspector's uh, uh, chief of staff. And I just a- asked him, um, uh, w- no, of one of his staffers. And I said, gosh, who are all these people? And he goes, well, about a third of them are the media, are the, about a third of them are other staffers who have, you know other senators and congressmen who have sent their staffers over to listen. And the remaining third are the families of the victims of 9-11. And that's when it kind of hits like, oh, great. I get to go explain how I had the ability to possibly prevent 9-11 and yet I'm the one who deleted all the data. That's fantastic.
1: Right. That certainly uh, couldn't have been comfortable right off
0: the bat. I tell No. You. What, what made it worse is somebody had put my, the company I was working for at the time, Lockheed Martin, underneath my signature name for the testimony, which in, you know, large defense contractor terms is you you never represent a company without their say. So I, I, I didn't even know that that occurred because, you know, even though I testified, all this happened before I came to Lockheed. It has nothing to do with Lockheed. I just happened to work for them now. Uh, that's not how it came out on the on the teleprompter on uh, C-SPAN or whatever, wherever it was being covered. Right. And I walked out and I immediately called my boss just to tell him I was on my way back. He goes, yeah, I forgot to tell you, you got fired when you started testifying. But as I talked to him during your testimony, they gave you your job back by the time you were done. So all that was going on while I was testifying. (laughs) What a roller coaster! Right, right. So it was, you know, it was just one of those things that it's just for, you know, when you get to some very chaotic times, the amount of times I had to uh, testify. In fact, I I had to do a four hour closed door testimony before the uh, members of the Senate. And it was in the room directly behind the the hearing room where John Roberts was being, uh, having his testimony for being chief justice of the Supreme court at the exact same time. Wow. So while that's going on, I could actually hear that going on in the room next to us while I was giving this highly classified testimony on camera for this operation.
1: Right. Tell us, you know, after all this was said and done, uh, what do you do now? I mean, what what, what have you been working on? Um, has it uh, anything to uh,
0: to do with the intelligence itself, or what? Tell us what you're doing at yeah. the current moment. Well, I as after I left the army again, I went to a, a very small company called Cytech that was later bought by Lockheed, and I started a training. I just turned right around and started a training program for the army. We and they gave me like enough money for to hire seven instructors you know, here's, here's, you know, a small amount of money. And so for the first couple of years after, after leaving the army, it was that, but I grew that program into 150 instructors and it turned into a a $30 million a year training program for the entire, mm-hmm. for, for the entire army. So for every soldier that, as soon as they were out of the schoolhouse and were and doing individual training at their unit, it was usually one of my folks that was doing that. But uh, that was at the point where I reached burnout stage. So as I had gone to American military university to get my master's while I was on active duty, uh, it was a simple adjustment to, uh, and I'd, I was already working for them on an industry advisory council. I was able to come on board with them and, and work outreach and, and projects for them. So it's uh, what I do primarily now is work for our school to do partnerships to with, with other agencies, with other organizations, whether it's law enforcement, um, and it's really you know more of a uh, organization to organization agreements on a evi- there's a lot of places where there's a lot of folks doing great stuff for training folks whether it's you know and our, our school will evaluate those uh, evaluate those courses for academic credit or we we'll provide incentives for organizations that have a lot have a lot of students that come to us i mean our our school is, has one of the largest intelligence studies programs in the world for students i think the last uh, the largest brick and mortar university in the U.S. and there's, it's a school I'm familiar with up in, uh, up in Ohio called Mercyhurst College. Mm-hmm. They have roughly 300 students. Uh, our school has upwards close to 4,000 intelligence study students alone, whether it's bachelor's, master's, or at the doctoral degree. So uh, there's, there's no end of different uh, projects and programs that I'm working on for that. One piece that I've gotten into the last couple of years has been on cold cases and because of my involvement in Able Danger I've I've I was introduced to and, and started working with a friend of mine who's now I th- consider a fairly close friend out of uh, Los Angeles named Tom Colbert and he brought me onto a cold case he was working on in 2011 to identify the real identity of the hijacker DB Cooper and so we've been working that for a, an incredible length of time and, and In the process of which he's there was one uh, History Channel documentary that came out on that and we're now currently working on a documentary, a five part documentary for Netflix about D.B. Cooper Mm. uh, and uh, who this guy really was and what his life is And, and then on in the process of working that three more cases that, again, and I, I can't talk about which ones they are, but they're considered the holy grails of cold cases. We started working those as well, and we think we've solved two of the three. Um, to, to the point where we're, you know we'll we'll be pretty confident if we're going to go do some investigations, some physical digging, someplace to see if we can find evidence to, that supports uh, our our hypothesis.
1: Mm. Well, Eric, I. Thank you very much for the interview today. Thank you very much. I've been
0: wanting to get in contact with you for a while. Sure.
1: And I, I appreciate uh, your time in answering the questions today. Thank sure. you very much for coming on.
0: I know I talk long and I talk fast, but if there's any questions that come up, you know, you think same thing with your listeners. I mean, I, I have, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I tell everybody that I give presentations, do send me a LinkedIn invite. If you've got any specific questions, I'm happy to answer them. That's, that's part of my job. So it's, it's no big deal.
1: Thank you for coming on Eric. Sure. And we'll-